Walt Disney by Neil Gabler, Chapter 44 As distracted as he was, and as much as he wanted to avoid them, the demands of the studio still made claims on his time and attention. While he was playing with his trains, his staff was finishing another live-action animation combination film, So Dear to My Heart, based on a popular novel by Sterling North titled Midnight and Jeremiah about a boy and his pet lamb. Pet lamb. It starred Bobby Driscoll and Luanna Patton, two children whom Walt had put under contract after their appearances in Song of the South. Like most Disney features, it had been in production a long time. Walt had begun meeting with screenwriter Edwin Justice Mayer in 1945, and Percy Pierce had gone to Indiana, Indiana, where the film was set, that summer to get a sense of atmosphere, just as Walt had gone to Atlanta to soak up atmosphere for Song of the South. The actual filming, on location in California's San Joaquin Valley, where the Indiana town was recreated, began late in the spring of 1946. Walt was on the set for long stretches at the beginning, and then on weekends making suggestions over Sunday breakfast, though director Harold Shuster, whom Walt had recruited from 20th Century Fox after seeing Shuster's horse movie, My Friend Flicka, said that Walt never pressed him. He felt the rain... He left the reins firmly in my hands, Shuster claimed. In post-production, however, Walt was forced to retake the reins. He wasn't particularly happy with the outcome of the film and had decided to rework at least one entire section, ordering Bill Anderson, who was responsible for the budget, out of the meeting at which he discussed the changes because Walt didn't want to be encumbered by financial considerations. But even as he reworked scenes, he was discouraged. While preoccupied with his trains, he nevertheless spent another year on the picture after the filming was concluded, finally deciding to add animated sequences as he had done in Song of the South and justifying them as figments of a small boy's imagination. As publicist Card Walker put it, he knew he had a problem. It was to escape tensions on the film that he had gone to Hawaii and then to the railroad fair. The addition of the animation prompted Mr. Harper and Harper's Magazine to observe only half in jest, and while the film was still in production, no good certainly can come of breaking down the barrier that still protects live three-dimensional people from the inhabitants of Mr. Disney's two-dimensional world who have been so firmly protected from the mediocre and the phony, a protection that had been the point all along. Now they no longer were. But it wasn't only mediocrity from which Walt Disney himself needed protection. In fact, So Dear to My Heart was actually a warmer, more sincere, and in most reviewers' assessments, better film than Song of the South. For Disney, the problem was that it was a concession, an exercise in excessive nostalgia no doubt influenced by his memories of Marceline. In celebrating small-town life and small-town values, he had ostensibly gone over to Norman Rockwell territory and reinforced his new post war image, not as a daring folk artist, but as a conservative folksy artist. So dear to my heart, even the title was sentimentalized, was not a bad film. It was, however, on its face a kitschy, syrupy, unimaginative one, essentially a greeting card. Still, Walt needed a hit so desperately that he spent three weeks that January attending premieres in Indiana, Ohio, Kentucky, and Tennessee. This from a man who once couldn't spare the time to attend the American premiere for Bambi. 
Yet in one respect, one important respect, the film was a departure and a hope. Walt had conceived it as a fully live-action feature, his first, even though it hadn't turned out that way, and as such, it was a kind of a kind of fulfillment. Almost from the moment he had arrived in Los Angeles, making live-action films had been his ambition. Live-action was easier than animation and cheaper, and at least when Walt had begun, it was much more prestigious than animation. Unable to break into live-action, he had retreated to the one thing he knew, cartooning, but he had never quite surrendered the dream, and by the time the strike was approaching, Walt, presumably in anticipation of losing some of his animators, had drafted a treatment for a film titled Hound of Florence, which he sent to RKO's production head, George Schaefer, with the instruction that Schaefer keep in mind this is not intended for combination cartoon live action, but instead it is written entirely for live action, using all the tricks we know a dog can do, and playing it for comic suspense throughout. He thought it could be made for under $400,000, which was considerably less than he was spending on his feature animations. The film was not made, another casualty of belt tightening, but Walt had edged closer to live action, largely as an economy measure with Song of the South, and then So Dear to My Heart, and the animators were concerned. As soon as Walt rode on a camera crane, one animator quipped, acknowledging Walt's love of both control and technology, we knew we were going to lose him. Ben Sharpstein admitted that many animators were very upset and asking whether Walt was deserting them and abandoning animation altogether. When one of them, Milt Call, went to Walt's office to protest, Walt said, Well, I'll tell you, Milt, I have to make a whore of myself to pay your salary. It's as simple as that. Oh, God, that was something really awful to come out of Walt's mouth. I mean, he said some awful things, but I think that has to be about one of the worst. Ugh. But it wasn't quite that simple, because there was another consideration in deciding to make a live-action feature. The British government, in an attempt to revive its own film industry after the war, had imposed a 75% import tax on American films shown in Britain, and ordered that 45% of the films shown in British theaters be made in England. The American State Department had agreed to a similar quota, with France restricting with France restricting the number of imported American films there to 110 to be supplied by the major production companies, which effectively froze out the Disneys, and Roy wrote Secretary of State General George Marshall to protest. For a studio that had always relied heavily on foreign receipts and had been devastated by wartime restrictions, these were terrible blows. To make matters worse, the French and British governments had both impounded receipts earned by American studios in those countries, insisting that the currency be spent there. For the Disney studio, this amounted to more than $1 million. Obviously, Walt couldn't set up an animation studio in England or France, but he had another option. He could make a live-action film in England and finance it with the blocked funds. In effect, then, Walt Disney finally crossed over into live-action. It was because the British government had forced him to do so. The project Walt selected for his British live-action feature, as he was winding down with So Dear to My Heart, was Robert Louis Stevenson's Treasure Island, about a young boy who joins up with a group of pirates, and he dispatched Percy Pierce and Fred Leahy to England to supervise the production. 
But Walt, who was still at, a lo- still at loose ends, decided that he would take Lillian and the girls for a European vacation on the pretense that he had to supervise the film personally. Later, he was candid about it. I did them in summer, he said of his English productions. That gave me a chance to get away. It was clearly a relief to be free of the studio that he had once loved so deeply, and Disney representative William Levy wrote Roy that Walt had arrived that June in excellent spirits and full of confidence and repeatedly remarked that with any luck, the picture should be brought in at a reasonable budget. The shooting began on July 4, 1949, in fantastically wonderful sunshine. The Disney's British agent, Cyril James, wrote Roy, The weather seemed to portend a relatively stress-free production. Walt, despite the professions of supervision, visited the set at the Denham Studios outside London only occasionally, and director Byron Haskins' agent wrote Jack Lavin, the studio talent coordinator, that that Walt seems pleased with everything. With the film sailing along calmly, Walt had provisions sent to the Dorchester Hotel in London, two cases of Johnny Walker Black Label whiskey, six cans of bacon, four cans of corned beef hash, Spam and Franks, six cans of boiled ham and 24 cans of his favorite dish, chili and beans, and played tourist with his family. When they tired of London, they visited Ireland for two days, then spent three weeks in France, where Walt revisited the sites of his Red Cross service, then crossed to Switzerland. After five, after five weeks in all, he and the family left for America, but in yet another sign of Walt's restlessness, he returned to England a month and a half later, this time without Lillian or the girls as the production rolled to its climax. The only suspense had been whether the British government would issue a work permit to Bobby Driscoll, who was to star in the film, since a British law prohibited the employment of actors under 13 years of age. Frantic upon hearing this, Fred Leahy arranged to have the Educational Bureau agree to look the other way during the filming, while Driscoll was to say that he was only in England on a visit. But when Driscoll was forced to stay longer than had been expected, due largely to weather delays, the crew worried that the police might issue a summons, so Driscoll was shuttled between the first unit, doing the principal photography, and when that unit was setting up, the third unit, usually assigned to do the scenes in which actors were not necessary. That way, Driscoll's time was maximized, though it meant that all his scenes had to be shot first. In the end, Driscoll's parents and the studio were both fined for violating the work permit law, but it was a small price to pay to complete the photography. Now came the typical race to finish the film in time for its contracted release in the summer. Though Walt had left most of the production to Pierce and Pierce and Leahy, he was unusually involved in the post-production, at least compared to the off-handed way he had been treating recent films. He had asked Pierce He had asked Pierce and Leahy to airmail him specific takings for editing, and after a test screening in early January, he ordered them to cut 10 to 12 minutes and provide a more forceful musical score. He also advised them that a more detailed criticism would follow. Two days later, he ordered the editor to fly from England to Los Angeles, apparently so that Walt could oversee the editing himself. The finished film, Walt Disney's first all-live-action feature, 
was both a critical and a financial success, the first in a long, long time. Treasure Island grossed $4 million, returning to the studio a profit of between $2.2 and $2.4 million. Roy, looking to the future, crowed that if we have a subject that seems to have a worldwide appeal, we have it in Technicolor and sell it as a Walt Disney picture. The studio could safely spend as much as $1.5 million in negative costs and still have a reasonably safe investment. This euphoria led Disney fans to worry, as the animators had, that Disney animation was dead, but Walt wrote Douglas Fairbanks Jr., Jr., one of those concerned, we are not forsaking the cartoon field. It is purely a move of economy. Again, converting pounds into dollars to enable us to make more cartoons here. It was a strange turn. Walt Disney had to make live-action films now to save his animations. As they were finishing the shooting, the Disneys suffered another blow. Through all the adversity, all the economic ups and downs, they had had one bedrock, the merchandise division headed by Kay Kamen. Though Walt often micromanaged his studio, he never interfered with Kamen, and Kamen had repaid the trust by following a policy as simple as Walt's own. The prestige and dignity of the name Walt Disney had to be maintained, he wrote a merchandising representative. The production of the Disney prestige was always more important than any royalties we would get. The policy worked. In 1947, Kamen claimed that the Disney label was selling roughly $100 million in goods each year, including toys, clothes, statuettes, snacks, and a full line of Donald Duck foods, including field peas with snaps, peanut butter, ketchup, chili sauce, macaroni, mayonnaise, and egg noodles. Yeah, it's kind of easy to forget that Disney has been involved that long in healthy food. Huh. In 1948, when the Disneys renewed their agreement with Cayman for another seven years, the five millionth Mickey Mouse watch was sold and more than 2,000 Disney-related products were being manufactured. Actually, this reminds me, I'm going to add this in and let my listeners know that if you know what I look like and if you ever see me with um, Donald Duck orange juice, It's not simply because I love Donald Duck. It's actually because I'm a Tim Burton fan, too. Um, And there was Donald Duck orange juice featured on Tim Burton's... I want to say it's it's probably his... Well, not his first film, but it's one of his first films. Um, His original Frankenweenie, the one that was like 30 minutes to an hour long that was live action... Yeah, that one. There's there's Donald Duck orange juice in one of the scenes, and I'd seen that movie so many times at one point that I was able to recite like the whole script, and I knew about that Donald Duck orange juice. So whenever I see Donald Duck orange juice, I don't just think Disney Donald Duck. I also think, ooh, I want cause Frankenweenie. <laughs> um, anyway. These sales brought in $1.25 million in profits, which the Disneys split with Cayman on a 70-30 basis, the bulk going to the Disneys, up from the 50-50 split the parties had had prior to the war. That didn't include a 10-year license extension on books and magazines that Roy himself had had negotiated with the Whitman Publishing Company early in 1948 that also required Whitman to underwrite a bank loan to the studio for $1.6 million. 
The Disneys not only trusted Cayman but liked him and enjoyed his company, and by happy coincidence, Walt, Roy, and Cayman all happened to be in Europe that October. Walt overseeing Treasure Island, Roy conducting business, and Cayman vacationing with his wife. The night before the Caymans were to depart for the States, they had dinner with Walt and Roy in Paris. Walt recalled that they were very happy. Earlier that day, Cayman had written the vice president of his company in New York raving over his vacation, but expressing his fear of flying back. The Caymans died the next day, October 27, 1949, in an Air France crash over the Azores. Oh, that's sad. Thus ended 17 years of one of Walt Disney's happiest and least tempestuous com collaborations. At the time of Cayman's death, the studio's profits from merchandise had reached a new high in our history, Roy wrote Walt. Cayman was irreplaceable, the Disneys knew, and they didn't even try to find a new agent. Instead, they decided to run the merchandising arm themselves, appointing O.B. Johnston, who had been a studio accountant, to head the division. A few months earlier, the Disneys had set up their own music publishing division to retain the rights to Disney songs and to acquire rights to other songs that had a Disney flavor, like the hits Mule Train and Shrimp Boats. Roy admitted nine months later that in taking over merchandising from Cayman's estate, they had had some ups and downs, but that we are now finally beginning to get hold of it and make progress. Still, though it was one of the most profitable divisions of the company, it only added to the growing, if mistaken, impression of Walt Disney as a corporate magnate rather than an artist, someone who was now out to exploit rather than to create.